A wonderful day. It's the end of the week for me. And uh, we're having a good one. We're having a good one. Welcome to my podcast. My name is uh, Pierre Hulsebus. It is the hustleisthehack.com podcast. That's right. It's time. It's that week. It's 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 the time. It's the time to do it. It's the time to hook up with your buddy Pierre. That's right. That's what we're doing here. We're going to spend some time together, a cup of joe. We're going to have a little cup of coffee. And uh, so have a seat, sit down, relax, enjoy yourself. I hope you're going to, we're going to have uh, some fun stuff today. So, um, hey, I wanted to introduce myself. My name is, as I mentioned there in the intro, Pierre Hulsebus, and uh, this is my podcast. It is mine. All the opinions expressed in this following podcast are that of Pierre Hulsebus and not of his employer. Um, They they are my opinions and uh, ideas, and um, so here we go. Let's talk. Um, And uh, you are, hopefully, you're uh, interested in selling. You're interested in the art of persuasion. You're interested maybe in some business development and kind of doing some stuff. You know, that's what we're doing. This is uh, Puzzles the Hack, which is really sales insights and ideas, practical insights and business development ideas from somebody that's been doing the biz for 30 years. Um, these are kind of weekly topics ranging from sales skills to gear to sales methodologies. I also like to uh, dive into what I refer to as the stack of stuff, the stack of stuff. Yeah, what that is, is that is a, um, you know, just a things that I, I collect during the week. It's a curated uh, review of different things that are happening out there in the broad ecosystem and uh, what is uh, how we apply a growth mindset to that and kind of get ready to generate new business ideas and have some fun. So grab a cup of coffee and let's sit down and relax and enjoy our time together. That's right. You and me. All right. All right. Well, let's get right into it. Let's get right into it. It is Memorial Day weekend. So maybe you're listening to this and it's uh, it's your you're driving back on Monday or it's uh, Sunday afternoon. Who, who knows? Uh, but it is Friday for me and I'm posting this up uh, today, hopefully. Anyways, so it's been a long weekend. We've had some successes and some not so successful things happening this week. And uh, let's get right into it. Let's go over to the stack of stuff and let me kind of go through a couple of things first is a kind of a funny one uh, justin trudeau who's kind of a i'm gonna with all due respect to my um friends in canada uh, justin trudeau um is um well he's a politician if you don't know who he is he is a he is a the quintessential uh politician uh up in uh, canada he um he loves to um Let's say signal that he is hip and and um, complex, and he is 
man, he is out there doing the work, and he is really um, a man of the people. He is a man of the people. In fact, he's so um, open-minded, and sometimes his brain leaks out, I think. <laughs> Actually, that's what happens. He's so open-minded, his brain leaks out. Anyways, it's just a hilarious picture someone caught of him on a uh, Microsoft team meeting, of all things. Um, and uh, some reporter um, caught, the, I don't know how this thing um, got done. This was, I think, a, um, this has got to be a, it's off the Liberal Party's website. So this is off his his party's website. He's in a team meeting. You got to see this picture. It's hilarious because he's sitting there and it looks like, hey, he's having a great time in the meeting. He's actually in the meeting. And he is, you can see his little picture, his little face there on the right-hand side on the bottom. That's his camera looking at him. And uh, on the computer that he has, though, it's on a couple books, which is, okay, smart thing to do because you get the camera right at your eye level. That's one of the little tricks, little hacks there. Uh, so smart, and he is there um, using his computer. But if you look at the computer, something looks a little off on the computer. He is actually using a lowly HP computer um, because you can see the Intel inside sticker and the whole port layout and the way that it works. It's got a little barrel plug and stuff like that. So this is like an older HP computer. And guess what? It's got an Apple um, logo that's been Photoshopped on the back. So it makes it look like... He is he is trying to impress everybody that he runs a Apple computer because that's what all the hip kids do, and um, he is one of the hippest of the hip kids. And uh, so you know, if he had HP on there, that would not be cool. Apparently, so they decided to put a fake everybody out and um, put an Apple sticker on his HP computer. Come on, if you're an HP fan, I've owned many HP computers in my life. I've sold tons of HP equipment. You know, HP is awesome. We love HP. They're a fantastic company. They're one of the they're one of the best technology companies. They have one of the greatest stories. Started in the garage. Those guys hustled their tails off to get that company going. Hewlett and Packard, and those were actually two guys. And so I just think this is hilarious. It's actually one of the interesting things about the way that ad agencies and photography of people with computers has been over the years. And uh, so a lot of times, you know, hey, someone's going to take a picture. And uh, so they go into the studio and maybe the ad agency and they're going to take a picture or they want to take a stock photo of a bunch of people working or whatever. Well, of course, they take those pictures often right in the advertisement agency's office. And because Photoshop was such a big part of those ad agencies work and all the hip kids that run Photoshop apparently run Apple computers. So Apple got all this free advertisement for years and years. All this stock photography shows Apple computers like you would if you looked at just the ads you would think Apple man everybody runs an Apple computer because all the all of the ad agencies run <laughs> um, Apple computers. But in fact, their market share is not that big uh, overall on the desktops and laptop computers. Not knocking uh, Apple. I almost recently bought an Apple. But anyways, I think that's funny. All right. Uh, I got another um, little piece of info and tidbit. And it's all about this Bitcoin thing. And um, it points out something that I think is very interesting. You have um, two guys um, that really, let's say, are capturing all of the attention, Mark Cuban and um, Elon Musk. They are um, catching all of the the eyes of the press and the technologists and all the people as this, these two guys 
are experts on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And uh, so let me talk to you a minute about this strategy and what these guys are, what's really going on. What's really, really going on. And here you go. Here's the deal. These guys um, both have a very, they're very smart. Uh, they have portfolios of money. Um, they take uh, various amounts of risk. Some of it stay, is steady and others are high risk investments. And they know that. And these guys are taking their high risk investment kind of part of their portfolio, of course, and putting it in to uh, cryptocurrency. And uh, I'm sorry, mom, cryptocurrency is a little complicated and I'm not going to get into all the details of what it is, but let's just imagine it's like monopoly money. Okay. And uh, let's just call it that it's a set of monopoly money. And um, everybody that's um, uh, trading that monopoly money, uh, there's only one um, printer of Monopoly money, and uh, those are uh, fancy computer systems. And so the supply of the Monopoly money um, is in some ways going to be fixed. And uh, so uh, when we use this Monopoly money back and forth, uh, we ap apply value to it accordingly. Uh, anyway, so it's kind of like script or like churches have done script programs and but it's like a it's a it's a digital money basically um it is like monopoly money anyways it has no bottom line it's not backed by a government it doesn't have any intrinsic value and there's nobody that is in charge of it it is a it's a technology that's been invented by people uh it's actually pretty rock solid stuff the way that it works from a technology standpoint it's it's brilliant actually of how they value it and all of this <clears throat> but in, it in in fact is it is speculation raw speculation in in a um, thing that has no intrinsic value and uh anyways so uh so that's bitcoin in a, in a nutshell and uh, if you kind of keep your eye uh, in the press or listen to, you know, hey, Bitcoin is awesome, Bitcoin sucks, Bitcoin's going up, Elon Musk is on SNL and Bitcoin goes down, all these different things happen. Is it useless? Is it not? There's all sorts of confusion around it. And these two seem to be at the middle of it, reaping all of the smart guy benefits because they're smart people. And because they're smart people, people trust them and go, oh, we're, those two guys are in Bitcoin. I should be in it too. And they're investing. And of course, the Bitcoins go up in value. And these two guys uh, end up uh, reaping the benefits because they're big investors in Bitcoin. I think mostly both of, both of them are buy and hold strategies. So they both have kind of bought low and just are sitting on a pile of it as it's going up in value. Anyways, that's not really the point. The point is this: uh, that these two guys, even though they seem like leaders in kind of the thinking space or the thought space, there really is a concept of what these guys are doing, which is something that is common in uh, wealthy organizations or large organizations that are powerful. And that is this. I linked an article. You can bet on every horse in a race. So did you know that you can go to um, to the racetrack and let's say there's 10 different uh, uh, runners in a race and uh, you could go and buy a, uh, a winning bet on every horse in that race. And, um, you know, you have your 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 um, sure shot, you know, the like the, the the favorite and the odds for that is pretty low for winning. And if you if he wins, you win a little. And if the the lower end horse, uh, the one at the wins, you win a lot. Right. And so this is a good example of 
investments, you kind of look at the risk and you kind of go, what are the returns that I would expect? And, um, you know, you, you, you can bet a little bit of money on, on the horses that you think are going to win. And you do that over time and you, you know, consistently come in in the money um, over time. And that's the idea with horse racing. Well, a lot of companies, um, what they're doing, what they're doing, these guys are no different than that. In their portfolio, they are betting on every horse. And um, uh, what, do, what do you mean by that? Well, Mark Cuban actually revealed this a couple of weeks ago where he, he's uh, talking about kind of his investment strategies. And he's been very open about it because actually he really started out before he was Mark Cuban. He was really an investor and picking stocks was his like math. He was a genius at that. In the 80s, um, I remember following him in Inc. Magazine, and he published his, this is before the internet, um, he would, you know, there was like a stock club, and here is the pick, and you could go and find out, you know, what his mix was, and he was a, you know, long-term investor in different things. He picked Disney, and I mean, he had a whole bunch of companies that he did, and he did really well, and he made, obviously, a lot of money early on in his young career doing that and uh, making investments and investing in companies. Anyways, uh, he's talked about his investment strategy and he's like, you should take 10% of your investments and that's kind of your, let's say, funny money. You, you're going to put that in your high risk area and that's what this is. So from, the, from those of us that are out here in the hinterland, out in the kind of country, if you will, flyover country, the lowly plebes out here that are out here you know, paying the bills, you know, we don't have that kind of Mark Cuban money. We're not the billionaires. We don't have that kind of money. And uh, so when we look at those guys, you kind of go, hmm, they're all in on this apparently, and it's really a big deal for them. In fact, it's a small part of their portfolio. And we can easily be misled uh, by the press thinking like this is the biggest thing and the greatest thing since sliced bread. Are people making money on it? Yes, they are. There are people making money on it because as more people come into this fixed pool of assets, it's just raw supply and demand. More demand, the price goes up less demand the price goes down the more these two are out there talking about it the people are coming into the market oh, i should get into that oh look it's going up and uh so it's just like yeah of course it's going up because everybody's getting in the pool we're all getting in it's like you take a glass of water and you start putting pebbles in it that takes up space it's just a limited amount of water the 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 level rises that is just pure um, physics. And so it's the same thing. Law of supply and demand. More people come into this market, uh, the price is going to go up. Doesn't mean that it's more valuable because the asset itself is more valuable. It's only more valuable because more people want the asset. And it doesn't make it any any better or worse uh, because the price goes up. Anyways, so sometimes we can kind of get a... a kind of sidetracked, if you will, uh, when we look at at the press and and we kind of don't really understand the whole picture because to these guys, it's not everything. It's just a small part of their portfolio, but because, you know, there's nobody that's in charge of it. There's no Alan Greenspan that talks about to Congress. All the press and Wall Street Journal have are guys like this that are are able to kind of think, uh, kind of gather, not gather, but uh, well, gather eyeballs and and, uh, make you know, a, a interesting article, but it doesn't improve the value intrinsically of those particular pieces of currency. Anyways, I th- find this very interesting. Uh, on that, there is also an interesting idea that comes along with this concept of betting on every horse in a race. 
And that is um, when uh, is a common strategy, actually, when you're selling into very wealthy companies or companies that are large and worth um, trying to grow their business substantially. What they're often willing to do is to try a lot of different things. Instead of making bets on one big technology or one big um, solution for whatever you're selling, they... Um, they want to spread that risk across a lot of different investments. And they look at um, their purchases and innovation and change management as investments in portfolios. And, um, and so um, you, you uh, are out there, you're, you're selling, let's say, into McDonald's and you're going to sell them something really cool. Uh, let's say I'm going to have my um, widget uh, fry cleaner system and it's going to clean the, the fry grills faster than anything in the world. And it's going to save McDonald's a million dollars a day and all of this kind of stuff. And uh, so they're like, oh, man, that looks great. Let's let's buy it. And so they buy. But instead of buying it for the whole chain, they just put, put an order for one. And uh, so then they also go buy. They go. This is a great idea. Who else is they, they competing against? And then they go out and buy that other guy's stuff too. And they will basically invest in a portfolio of different products to solve similar problems. And then they'll just invest in all of them. And then they will kind of go, all right, which ones are going to, which one works? So give them all a try. Let's try every one of them. And uh, and then uh, whichever one we don't want, we just don't buy that one. You won't renew that contract next year or something like that. And so you have to be aware of this when you are in the sales position, because sometimes when we're selling, we're like, oh, McDonald's just bought our stuff. It's so awesome. And we're just great. And we're on the top of the world. And uh, when it's they're just looking, McDonald's is looking at this as a trial. And we're looking at this as like this is we just won the McDonald's account, blah, blah, blah. You know, so uh, you got to kind of sometimes be careful uh, what you wish for, because uh, once you get in there now, you actually have to work to help sell it through to get that not just in the initial phase, but get to the second and third order. And uh, sales organizations, when you're in that kind of hunter-farmer mode, I'm going out, I'm going to go land the big whale, I'm going to get McDonald's. Um, And then when you get that initial sale, then you're out and you turn it over to the farmer uh, kind of salesperson or the inside salesperson, sometimes that would be detrimental in a case like that because, you know, the maybe there was issues or questions about how the thing worked or whatnot. It would be great, wouldn't it, if, you know, they would have um, someone there interested in the next sale there, the next um, uh, expansion of that. So it's like, oh, we could get the feedback from the customer and maybe improve the product. And um, then the, the customer would enjoy the benefit of that, that new feature or those new parts of the product. And we would be able to then um, increase our footprint there. So that's that's one of the things I just wanted to mention. I've been in that boat many times where we were um, we were one of many, and instead of just being the first loser and getting second place, we were included in the installation. And um, unbeknownst to us, they had also bought our competitor's product and just deployed both of them in in two different divisions. If the company's big enough, they can do projects like that. And then that what they're doing is testing to see you know which which project is best which one works the best. And then, um, so we're, we don't need to be sold on it. We're going to try both, you know, 
It's like going to the smorgasbord. So sometimes companies will bet on every horse, and you better know, um, uh, you know, what the whole strategy is, and that it's not just, oh, we just won the biggest account of the year, and then you know, um, a year later, after that first kind of iteration is uh, consumed, then then you're done. You're out of there. They they get rid of you because it didn't meet all of their expectations, and they their competitor your competitor actually was also in there, and they won the deal ultimately. So know where you're at in that process, and sometimes you got to stick with it. Uh, I was in organizations, and uh, one of the customers I had uh, sold we sold toner, or they sold toner um, cartridges and stuff like that, printer supplies into different companies. And uh, often what they do in a lot of those types of operations where you have commodity type of sales, you kind of you have the hunters, the guys that or the gals that go out and, you know, land the big customer, sell it into the state of Minnesota or whatever, get the big state contract. Woo-hoo. And then once that's done, they get their commission. That guy walks away and an inside salesperson comes and takes takes over and then you know they're just they're taking orders as the customer you know um, replaces or kind of does maintenance on that or says hey we need some supplies please take care of us Uh, sometimes that's a bad strategy that's a bad strategy you want to make sure the if you're that hunter you want to some organizations should actually have that hunter salesperson um, stick in the account until there's maybe three orders from the customer. They order reorder three times, and then at that point, now they're on maintenance. Now they're able to be taken care of more like an inside account. But until they get solidified, that customer, you can't just take that first sale as like the win. You sometimes have to take the second and third sale. That's really the sign that you really won. And uh, you got to stick with it sometimes, and and not just take that first one as the as the win because the game's not over. The game is not over. All right, well, let's take a, a quick break. My name again is Pierre Hulsebus. Thanks. Welcome to hustleisthehack.com. and uh, we'll be right back after this. Hey guys, I'm always getting asked about my podcast and. And how do you get to make it and, you know, what tools are you using to get online and get your ideas out there? Well, let me tell you, if they haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's by far the easiest way to make a podcast today. Everything you need is all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then hosting, which is kind of actually technically relatively complicated. They do all of that stuff and distribute all that stuff. Guess what? For F-R-E-E, they do all of that. It's uh, Spotify. You'll see your podcast show up on Apple, on Stitcher, all these great platforms. Everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, did I mention that it's free? So here's how you do it. You go to the Anchor app. Go to the App Store. Just put in Anchor. Or you can go to the anchor.fm and you can get started right away. Thanks to our sponsor, Anchor. Here we go. Here we go. It's time again. We're back from the break. We are back. We are back, people. 
There you go. It's time. We're back now from break, and uh, it's just an exciting moment here in time. All right. <laughs> I, I got to ask some questions today. Who did it? <laughs> there you go. Who did it? It's a who done it. It's a who done it today um, after our break. And um, boy, lots of fun stuff. We are going to be talking about a book today. And it is, um, I got a, I got another little thing about uh, um, who moved my cheese. And uh, if you're if you're an old dude like me, uh, you're kind of probably jaded on who moved my cheese because it was a pretty big deal. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. I I wanted to uh, wrap up on one of the things that I just had mentioned, which is that concept of defeaturing and retailing, and um, the the sense of choice people have when they go into retail or when they choose to purchase things. You know, that's in many ways what we're doing when we're selling. We're actually not so much selling somebody something, getting them to buy something, as opposed to helping them buy something that they're interested in. <clears throat> People have expressed interest, and um, they're taking some action. They're they're listening. They're leaning in. They're they're looking. They're doing something with you in order to understand better uh, the solution that you have, whether that's a product or whatever. And uh, what's your job in many ways is to help them through that process of buying as opposed to selling them something they don't want. And it's really, it, excuse me, a very interesting effect is sometimes a lot of salespeople actually think they're conning people or trying to get them to buy something they don't want. And that's the last thing that you want to be involved with. It's not like I, um, uh, you know, this is the challenge with maybe door-to-door selling or something like that. It's not that people aren't interested in knives. Of course, they want knives in their house or vacuum cleaners um, or magazines. But those aren't where people are going out and looking. Those are more you're you're trying to generate something. And that is a little more, a lot more challenging. But um, when we're working with somebody and they're expressing interest and they've taken the action to come to you, a lead or something on that order, now it's really helping them through a buying process. What is in their mind? What is the thing that they're interested in? What are, why, do they, why do they want what you have? What is it about that that they have? And uh, I keep going back to retail because in many ways it distills the complexity of sales down to some very simple elements, and it's really easy to follow along uh, with what is happening and how people buy uh, and what is in their motivational um, kind of mindset, how people change their minds throughout the process and uh, what's really going on. Uh, I had one fellow that I worked with, and he specialized in selling high-end audio equipment and video equipment. And he had a line that I used uh, used for, I stole it from him, I'll admit it. And I learned from him a lot, and he would say this, you know, hey, Bob, be, when, thanks for coming in today. But before you make your final selection and purchase, uh, you owe it to yourself to see the latest available on the market today, some with features you may not even know exist. 
And then he would walk him over, that prospective customer, over to the highest end audio equipment or the highest end video, like big screen TV that we would have at the time. And then he would explain like how cool it was and whatnot. And he would literally at that time, well, what do you think? You want me to wrap it up? And sometimes the customer would say, yeah, like they would literally walk in for the cheap one and then they, they would look at the highest end one and they would buy that high end one about 20% of the time. Um, a lot of times, of course, the customer would say, no, it's way well out of my budget. Well, let me show you something that's just a little less expensive than this. This may be closer to your budget and has some of those awesome features, but maybe not as big or whatever. And so really what he was doing in many ways was helping that customer through that buying process of rationalizing what they want to do. And sometimes, you believe it or not, people don't just want the cheapest thing, right? They want options. That's why having options is good. Uh, so, yes, we have that de-featured low-end, below-cost model, but then we'd also have the high-end, high-gross margin and ones that are in the middle that you that most people really walk out the door with. And that kind of good, better, best scenario, there's a lot of studies that have been done about that. And this is the thing that you want to be able to do is give people choices and not just um, go, well, they're here for the cheapest thing. And so that's what I'm going to do is just sell them the first offer. A lot of times it's somewhere in the middle between the highest end and the lowest end. And people actually enjoy this process of trying to make a choice and the decision process itself and trying to imagine what that would look like in the room of their house or how they would in, um, enjoy the benefit of this. And um, not everybody's motivated by just having the cheapest or spending the least amount of money. Some people, for example, especially in, let's say, the high-end audio world, they want to know, I have the best um, system that you can money can buy. I have the highest end, you know, mid-range system ever, or they collect all sorts of specific brands. Like I have an entire Sony system, so I'm going to buy the best Sony that I can get or um, that I can afford. And so they're not interested in anything else except the Sony because that's their matched environment or that's the system that they, they have. They are in that Sony ecosystem. And so sales, a lot of salespeople feel guilty about um, selling things because they think they're conning people or taking them and getting them to buy something that they don't want. But that's 99% of the time not what's going on in the mind of the buyer. Think about it. When you go look at clothes, sometimes the money comes into play but you're actually more interested in how it looks on your body or does it match other things that you have. Um, you're, you're, you know, you're always looking for that deal, that balance between quality and price. Anyways, that's what's really going on in people's mind. And a lot of times we just need to help think about helping people through that process and not like I'm just here asking for money. Um, nonprofits have to think through this all the time because a lot of us look when we're raising money for a nonprofit where we think we're looking for a handout, like, please think of the children, blah, blah, blah. And we're trying to use guilt to motivate folks. 
But in many ways, what folks want to do is feel like they're, they're partners with you delivering something and that the benefit for them is that sense like they're part of the solution, not just giving money to somebody to fix a problem. They actually want to feel like they're part of delivering the solution, that they're helping the situation better. And so that sense of, of accomplishment that they get from that um, partnership is what they're really looking for. Um, look, look at the way that a good symphony raises money. They sponsor a chair, like the first chair, and they raise money based around maybe specific um, programs, like literally the program for we're going to raising money for the Mozart series, because then you find people that love Mozart. And so they are, they're basically able to partner with the symphony to, to expand the education of the Mozart uh, stuff, right? And so the, don't, the folks that are your patrons end up being part of the solution as opposed to just taking money from them to assuage their guilt that they haven't done enough. And so ap- appealing to guilt is the weakest <laughs> sales technique. Um, helping people through that buying process and helping them feel like they're they're participating in what you're delivering is really the like be part of the movement. And there's no company that has actually figured that out more in the commercial space than Apple. Like for whatever reason, they built this kind of. It's very hard to put your finger on it, but when you um, when you become a Apple you know user, you become part of a community of Apple users. When uh, they came out with the headphones, the first iPods, the advertisement that they had for it never showed the actual product. All their ads showed was the person with the headphones, and it was in black and white, um, was the outline of the person. And they had in their hand the iPod, and then they had the white cable that connected their ears to the iPod. And so the outline of all those people with a really cool, like, pastel-colored background or bold-colored background that uh, matched up to the beat of the music, but the white of the um, cable ended up being the symbol. And that was the iconography around, you know, if you see somebody with this white cable coming between their ear and whatever's in their pocket, that you're part of the cool kids. This is what the cool kids are all doing. And so now you're, you're part of this community of coolness and awesome hipness. You're somehow woke and connected to a more diverse and inclusive environment. And, you know, they just were able to elevate the use and consumption of products and services to something that, that is so far beyond the actual use of the product. I mean, for goodness sake, it's just a music player. It's just a fancy Walkman. Instead of it being tapes now, you have these little files that you connect up to your computer. Like, that's what it really was. It has this function. But they were able to connect the purchase of that into a much higher, uh, a much higher kind of evolved concept. And it's just amazing. Apple does a really great job at that. They're, they're masters of that. This is how they can, you know, make $100 million off stupid watch bands. I mean, for goodness sake. Um, they are not a technology company. They're one of the best marketing companies ever uh, because that's what they've done. They've connected to the value that people get 
and the feeling you have when you're one of the customers of that as opposed to just selling you this thing and they they don't ever talk about the specifications they don't ever talk about how fast it works or how durable it is all of that stuff is just assumed it's always going to work it's going to be easy to use blah 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 it's just you now are a part of this awesome community Anyway, something that they could do. I could go on. I could go on. But I think that's an important part when we think of the features of something and the benefits of them. We can think of the choices and business process or the buying process that the buyer is going through. Helping them through that process is really what we're to be doing when we're salespeople. We talked about betting on every horse, and we also made fun of Justin Trudeau. So anytime we can do that, that's awesome. (laughs) Anytime we can poke fun at Justin Trudeau is my favorite. Um, Anyways, so, um, well, for the last couple minutes of our time together, I wanted to uh, talk to you about something that is actually really an interesting uh, uh, component to what is uh, going on out there. Uh, And it's kind of a... uh, a, a big concept that we we need to do. Anybody have any idea what that would be? Anyone? No, nobody's got. It. All right. So what's what's in the mind of Pierre right now? <clears throat> it's about change and change uh, management and change awareness. And uh, I'm going to put a book in the stack, and it's called "Who Moved My Cheese." Um, Who moved my cheese has been around. For a long time, it was actually published in 1988. It's sold, I don't know, 200 million copies, 26 million copies actually, is uh, how many uh, copies of the book have been sold in 37 languages. And it's really one of the best-selling business books ever done. And um, it's something that you can read in two hours. It'll take you an hour or two to read it. It's 90 pages long. You could actually just go on. There's um, a movie that's been (laughs) been, uh, put out about it. Um, and stuff like that. And on YouTube, you can see all the little movies. I used to teach this class. I taught this for a long time in my consulting practice. And uh, so this is kind of why I think it's an important component, because I've dedicated a lot of my life to learning this uh, methodology. And that's what it is in many ways. It's a little bit of a methodology uh, around how to manage change and be aware of change. And uh, the uh, the text uh, revolves around um people's life and their work and there's different reactions to change and um so the way it is it's a little bit of an allegory who moved my cheese there's a two there's a maze and there's two mice in the maze and there's two little people and they hunt for cheese in the maze and uh so because you know mice love cheese that's why so the allegory uh, is is what it is. It's an allegory. Uh, so that what that means is, if you, if English is not your first uh, language, an allegory is a like a parable or a tale, like a like a. Um, it's an it's an um, literary device in which the characters and the places and the events deliver a broader message about the real world and issues around us. Authors used allegories throughout history in a lot of different forms and art. To um, so you can see uh, classic and biblical allegories all over the place. Um, it's used all the time in fiction and poetry and, and art um, to um, 
relay. Um, the, a lot of children's stories are, are really allegorical about uh, they personify um, abstract concepts into stories so we can learn them. And so it's really interesting stuff. Anyways, this is a, a modern day allegory. Who Mowed My Cheese features four characters. There's two mice uh, and the my, mouse, mice are called Sniff and Scurry and two little people. And one's name is Hem, and the other's name is Ha. Those are the names of the little people taking from the phrases of, uh, there's a phrase in English called Hem and Ha, like Hem and Ha means to be indecisive and not to be able to make an easy decision. Now, all these creatures, these four, they live in a maze, and it represents really one person's environment or the environment that they do work in or live in. So that could be your life, your marriage, your family, could be your work situation, your church, your uh, neighborhood, your school system. Um, And um, everybody in there is looking for cheese. That's the food source inside of cheese, inside of that maze. You look for cheese. Uh, cheese really represents happiness, success, um, um, contentment. It can represent a lot of different things to people. and um, But happiness uh, or success might be the easiest way to think about it, that you're looking for things in our lives that drive success and happiness. So um, initially without cheese, they um, the cheese where they, they used to like get up in the morning and drive, uh, walk over through the maze from where they <clears throat> from where they lived to uh, excuse me um, from where they lived to where the cheese was cheese station C and that's where everybody met and they hung out there and stuff like that and you establish routines and then um, you you not really seeing that the cheese now is in a pile and it's slowly becoming less. Uh, they're supposed to be becoming um, a little and smaller amounts of cheese at the cheese station. So one day, Sniff and Scurry, they arrive at, st- at the cheese station C to find no cheese. Uh, and But you know what? They weren't surprised. Um, they um, noticed that the cheese supply was dwindling, and they are mentally prepared beforehand for the inevitable task of finding more cheese. So they... Um, uh, begin their hunt for the new cheese. And uh, later that day, Hem and Haw, um, the two little people, they they show up, they stroll in to Cheese Station C and find, guess what? Yeah, no cheese. Uh, they're angered, annoyed. They demand uh, Hem. He's like, dude, who moved my cheese? And he is stuck. The humans encountered um, uh, they encountered like no cheese because they have been counting on the cheese supply being constant. They were unprepared for the eventuality that was happening and deciding that the cheese is indeed gone. They get angry and um, at the unfairness and they're upset. They suggest that they, uh, Ha, who he um, he's the other dude, and he, he suggests that they search for new cheese, but Hem is dead set on and is disappointed and dismisses the idea of looking around for new cheese. He knows that the cheese is going to come back, probably. Skiff and, uh, Sniff and Scurry have found uh, another cheese um, uh, already. Um, they've gone to Cheese Station End, there, which is around the corner, and uh, it's not as big as Cheese Station C, but, you know, hey, they, they're able to make it through the day. Um, Ham and Ha are still affected by their lack of cheese. They blame each other for their problems, hoping that it will change. 
Um, ha keeps um, proposing that they search for new cheese. Um, Hem is comforted by his old routine and is frightened about the unknown. He knocks the idea again, so he's like, no, we're not going to do that. After a while of being in denial, the humans remain without cheese. So one day, having discovered his debilitating fear, Ha begins to chuckle at the situation and stops taking himself so seriously, realizing he should just simply move on. So Ha goes out into the maze um, and not before uh, chiseling the famous words, if you do not change, you can become extinct. And um, so this is this is what happens, you know, um, our uncompromising refusal to change sometimes um, keeps us from, uh, you know, enjoying new cheese, being able to move on because stuff changes. And that's one of the things that you can take away from the story is that change is always happening. They keep moving the cheese, whoever they are, (laughs) these people out there keep moving the objectives and the goals in life. And that's true. Um, stuff happens. The book was written, actually, believe it or not, not for a business um, context. Initially, it was a way for Spencer Johnson, who was the author of the book, was going through a divorce. He was divorcing his wife, and he wanted to have a story that he could tell his teenage kids. And this is how he did it. Basically, change happens. We're getting a divorce. There's nothing you guys can do. It's not your fault. There's no problems. It's not you. It's us. Change is going to happen. And this is the thing to walk away from is that change is always happening. If you look at it in sports, it's really interesting. I'm a big fan. Everybody knows of the Detroit Pistons, especially the 88 Pistons and and they're um, the bad boys. That was when I was really into basketball. And, you know, that was a dynasty, and you can think of all of these basketball teams like under Jordan in the 90s or the Steelers in the 70s or the, the Oakland A's in 75. Like all these different eras of baseball where there was a dynasty, a team came together, and it was unique. Uh, but over time, after a few years, things change. People get injured. The things in the game changes, um, new techniques come into play, and that winning formula doesn't always keep going. And so you have to figure out how to get beyond that because change is always happening. And you want to be able to anticipate change, get ready for when that cheese is getting moved. The, the little mice, they had already noticed that, and they were actually, during their downtime in the story, going out and looking for other cheese already. They had alternate plans already, and that's the concept here. That's why I this model of this kind of stack of stuff, for me, is a big, strong business model for me. I am always looking for change. I understand that change is going to happen. I'm in an industry that constantly changes. And I don't care what industry that you are in. If you um, if you don't believe change is coming uh, your way in your industry or your business is not going to get disrupted by somebody else, then you're just not thinking this is going to happen. Uh, that's what all the bookstores thought. Um, think of all the bookstores in the 80s and 90s that were so awesome. We used to go to several bookstores. We had one here in Grand Rapids called Schuler's. 
And they had these beautiful um, stores, and it was many ways today like what you would um, experience if you went into a Starbucks. They had a little coffee shop in there, and you would sit down, and you could uh, peruse through the books, and everybody was so nice, and the environment was so beautiful. And then uh, along came Amazon and screamed that industry. And it wasn't anybody's fault. There was no fault of anybody in the book business. It's not like they had a bad system. It's like buyers were just much more interested in just, I I can do the research on the book. I don't like, that's a beautiful retail experience, but you know what? I got, my time is worth more than sitting and having a cup of coffee. And so change happened. So we need to be able to monitor changes and the impact that's going to happen in our business, whether that's fundraising uh, and being able to come up with new methods or fundraising, whether that's um, selling, going from uh, online to in-person selling, changing the buying experience. Look at what Tesla is doing. Uh, It's not just the thing that they're disrupting is not just the fact that they have an electric car that is awesome. They're changing the way cars are sold because they're selling them directly. They're cutting out the middleman. There's no dealership. And they're willing to put up with um, states like I live in the state of Michigan where it's illegal, literally in law, to buy from the manufacturer because this is where the manufacturers exist in Michigan. So the dealers all went in a league with the legislature many years ago and made it illegal for us to buy a car from General Motors. You have to buy it from a car dealership. Now, that is stupid if you think about it, um, and that is something that would have was done in the 50s, but that's the law, and in states where that law exists, guess what? Tesla just doesn't sell cars directly to anybody, so you know we don't get to buy Tesla cars here in Michigan from uh, Tesla. We have to go down to Indiana and buy them there, or Illinois. It's bizarre. Um, but this is anyways, what I'm saying is change happens in the industry and there, and your industry is always being disruptive. If you're in a good industry, if you're in a smart company, you're looking for ways for your own company to dis- disrupt your own way of doing business. You're willing, as we said earlier, to bet on every horse. So you're willing to take high risk bets with um, some uh, with uh, on, on different ways of doing stuff to try it out to see if it works. And um, so change happens and you better be ready for change. And um, the real way um, out of that book that I have learned to be such a piece of success is um, not only just to monitor the change, but adapt to change quickly. The quicker you can let go of old cheese, the sooner you can enjoy new cheese. So instead of being that guy that sits back and looks at the way things used to be and try to figure out how to rekindle some old models that used to work really well at that you were super successful at, it's time to be brave enough to suck at something new. It's time to step out into (laughs) a new way and um, uh, believe that you can take the same amount of gumption and smarts and tenacity that it took you to be successful in one thing to believe that you can have that same energy and effort applied to a new thing and be successful in something new and go through that learner's journey and be sucking at the beginning part of it. But within a short period of time, you will enjoy success because success isn't just the chance of the opportunity. It's also the person behind the chance 
of the opportunity, applying their brain and and your unique personality and your unique skill set to that. So go out and enjoy the change, savor the adventure, enjoy the taste of new cheese, and be ready to change quickly and enjoy that again, getting out into a job situation where your old job is gone. It's now getting out to find a new job. Man, that that's that could be exciting. It can be exciting to think about the new future. Or you can choose to be really bummed out and depressed and go, man, I was so successful at an old old thing and this that thing will never be there again. So be cautious of your past experience uh, in in the sense that, you know, it can be such a um, sucker sometimes, suck your all your energy into this old thing. And um, you want to be able to explore different parts of the maze regularly to prevent compli- uh, complacency and compliance, so to speak, with old models. And so if you're in the job, if you're in a job market that's dynamic, <clears throat> then I'll tell you this, every Friday I get emails that come into my inbox and on Friday I usually take an hour and a half and I literally go look for other jobs. I go out on Monster. I go into my own company's internal website and look for the thousands of potential jobs that I could have. And it's not because I'm interested right now in leaving. I love my job. I love the people that I work with. I enjoy um, the current situation that I'm in. But I want to be ready for change. And I want to understand the the scenarios around me so that when things happen, um, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to move. You don't want to be ready to move sometimes, you know. So anyways, you know, um, this book ended up becoming for many people um, uh, a uh, a little bit of a, a lot of people mocked it. Uh, and it's still broadly kind of considered a little trite because it's a very, um, it's a small book and it doesn't address a lot of the complexities. But it's really, um, it, it is what it is in the sense that, um it was meant to, to, to have a very simple message and a couple different ideas. And um, those at a personal level are things that can help you move forward in your life and um, to understand that change is happening. Now, in your company, if you start handing this book out just before you're firing people, that's probably not a good idea. This is the stuff that happened with this book. It became such a, a way to um, communicate like organizational change is happening. And uh, so get ready for change. So um, you're going to, you know, I want you to be ready to get fired. So here's the book that's going to help you kind of transition into another career. Like that's not how you want to do that if you're in business. But uh, but it is a, a, a relentless, positive um, thinking. Um, and it's one of those things that will fill you with a little bit of hope and hopefully some self-confidence that, you know, when change happens, we want to often get sucked back into how things used to be. And this is the concept of a growth mindset of looking forward and finding in those kind of changes where the opportunity is. And that's the framework that I hopefully um, you're able to handle today. Yep, yep. I know some people laugh at that, but it's true. I feel sad if that's what you're doing, if you're laughing at me right now. No, what I hope you're getting ready to do is have an awesome day because you are awesome. It is a uh, awesome week. And uh, we're getting ready. I'm going to share next week about my trip to Africa and what's gonna what's coming up with that. 
And uh, we've got some other stuff coming along. It's Memorial Day weekend, and I hope you were having an awesome day. So guess what? You are a promise. Your possibilities are endless for you. Get out there. Let's move the cheese, okay? Hey, 